Welcome to OneGreatMoment.com, a podcast clearinghouse for everybody's greatest stories. We've all got a tale to tell, and someday we'd love to hear yours. You can see our website for how that works. But here and now, in this moment, we're off to moment number three, somebody's sacred mountains. Enjoy your listen. So where do you find a great moment? How about an old yellowing letter written by a wide-eyed suburban-raised college kid to his mom, describing a young mind-blowing adventure? Postmark, Barranquilla, Colombia, 1973. Dear Mom, I gotta get this down before it's forgotten. Please pass this letter along to anybody who might be interested. But most of all, save it for me so I can read it in ten years and still not believe it. This is a pinch-yourself-to-wake-up trip, and it's not even over yet. But Jim's walking out of the mountains in a couple of days, and I'll send these notes on the event so far out with him. The rest of us will stay up here for another few weeks yet. We're up at high camp at 16,000 feet. Last time you heard from me, about a month ago, I was finally leaving for this expedition after having run around the whole mountain range looking for an Indian chief who would give us permission to pass into his sacred mountain range. We never found him, so I had left a new friend, a guy whose father had been a missionary in the area and who knew the natives and some of their language, to try to find him while I went back down to finish preparations. I had just spent the whole morning under the influence of screaming diarrhea chasing around the town of Valle du Par looking for the only truck which runs up to the mountain village of Atanques at the end of the road. The driver had promised us an early morning ride, but he was nowhere to be found. That last postcard was sent just as we roared out of town at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the back of a truck with the six of us, our 700 pounds of gear, and 15 drunken political ralliers. I wonder if you ever got that postcard. Anyway, an hour into the trip, after fording a giant river, we got a flat, which required all the men to lift the truck up while the driver changed the tire. We finally got to Atanque's after dark and had to organize all our stuff by candlelight. No electricity. The mule driver had quintupled the price we had supposedly settled on, so we were going to be carrying really big packs. And we had to leave early since Phil, the missionary's kid, had made a deal with El Secretario of the local tribe. But the commissario, or chief, couldn't be found, and if he did show up, we might lose our permission to pass into the mountains. We got up at four the next morning and left town with flashlights so we could get to Dona Chui, the first Indian village, in one day. The mule driver promptly took off, leaving us with 70-pound packs, wondering if we'd ever see our food again. We got in at about 7 o'clock that night, with a whole lot of wasted people and a bunch of blisters, having run out of water at about noon in 100-degree heat. Phil had gone ahead and set up mules with El Secretario, Herman Esquerdo, for the following morning. Beyond Donachui, you could only use Arwako, Indian, mules. But when Herman showed up later that night, we had to tell him that there was no way we could leave the next day, no matter what the native politics were. We were too trashed. So the next day was very mellow. The heat wasn't so bad when you weren't hiking, and there were Arwakos hanging out all around the abandoned mission house we were staying in. We had a very far out time playing frisbee with the Indians and generally fooling around. We did discover that the commissario was the head of a different faction of the tribe and didn't want anybody in his mountains, but we arranged with Herman to leave at five the next morning. 
It was beginning to be like living under a microscope, however, as about 20 Arawakos were constantly watching us, fascinated by our food, stoves, and everything else we had. They were really easy to talk to, though, since Spanish was a second language for all of us. Late that night, Herman came down and told us we'd have to go talk to the Comisario at 6 and get another permission. Plus, he needed the time to find two more mules. We could leave at 8. After half an hour of talk, with me half asleep in my sleeping bag under an amazing sky of bright stars, I convinced him to come with the mules when he was ready, and we'd all go together to talk to El Comisario. Then it was back to sleep. The next morning during breakfast, there was an Arwako lurking around. Nothing unusual, but he finally handed us a note and left. The note said, After more deliberation, we've decided that we cannot let anyone into our mountains. Shortly after this, Herman arrived and was informed of the message. He said it was probably from someone or some group other than the Comisario, not to worry. We'd leave at midnight and sneak through the area where the hostile group lived, get to the village of Sagrome before dawn. His family was in Sagrome, and from there on we'd be fine. Plus, by that time, he'd surely have five mules. So that day was spent talking about the ethics involved in sneaking into somebody else's holy mountains. A number of us were philosophy majors, of course, so it wasn't really very simple. It had been bothering us all along, since there were definitely two factions of Rawakos, one of which was happy to take your money and rent your mules, and the other which wouldn't take any money and wanted to keep the mountains and high lakes sacred. They couldn't really understand that in a way the mountains were sacred to us too and that we had no intentions beyond climbing. The other threats to their culture came from prospectors, missionaries, and farmers, coffee and lately pot, who kept pushing higher into their mountain land and culture. Of course, from their perspective, were we really much different? Both factions insisted that the other consisted of a few troublemakers, but we couldn't tell which was the majority, or for that matter, which was even telling the truth. After talking about going around to the other end of the mountain range, or leaving entirely, we finally decided that everybody we'd met had been really friendly, so it's probably okay. How's that for a rationalization? We had made a lot of friends. It really flipped out when we knew ahead of time that a solar eclipse was coming and showed it to them with pinhole cameras, and they loved our glow-in-the-dark Super Bowl, which we gave to a bunch of kids. Anyway, here we were, a long way from home, so we decided we'd go on through that night and pay off the commissary if we had to. That was the philosopher's resolution. We went to bed early to get some sleep before leaving at midnight. Just as we were dozing off, we heard Phil, who had gone to finalize things with Herman, return, saying that we had to leave immediately. Somebody had left the gate open on the trail so we could get through. We stumbled around and got our gear together, but nobody showed up. After a while, we went back to sleep, figuring we were getting the run around again. But a while later, we were awakened by the sound of a whole bunch of Indians crashing through the jungle. I figured we were through, shrunken heads in the whole trip. But it turned out to be Herman and his family, cranked on coca leaves, an Arwako staple, and quite drunk to boot. On top of all this, they were carrying shotguns and a bunch of accordions. We loaded up the mules and left, stumbling down the trail to accordion music, with singing Arwakos periodically falling off their horses. After about a half an hour, we passed the wood gate, which had actually been smashed and pushed off the trail. 
I sort of figured we'd gotten ourselves in an Indian war at this point, but it was too late now. Nothing could be done except drink the cheap cane whiskey that was going around and march along in the dark, waiting to be ambushed or something. I'm thinking Vietnam, of course, kind of ironic. Finally, we stumble into Sagrome and got pointed to a place to sleep. It was 2 a.m., Christmas Day. I wonder what you were all doing then. Sugar plums, I guess. This is like another planet. Okay, Mom, a little break in the action here. I'm continuing this letter a couple of days later. A rest day. Jim leaves soon, so I've got to get this done. Jim and I did a real nice climb yesterday, but didn't get back to camp till about 10, since we finished about dark and had to bivouac a few hours to wait for the moon to provide enough light to descend. Next time we'll take headlamps. Everything's a lot bigger than it looks up here. A new large route on rock was a first for me, very different from following a climb in a guidebook. You never know whether it's even possible until you've finished the last pitch. I'm learning a lot. Anyway, the next section of our trip in was arduous but enjoyable. We didn't get out of Sagrome until noon, since Christmas is a fiesta for converted arwakos. As it turned out, we had actually tied into a roving party the night before, during which somebody must have decided, hey, let's go get the gringos. That would be a lark. Herman's brothers, Faustino and Attilio, were going to take us and the mules on up into the Sierra. The trail follows one river, the Dona Chui, all the way to its source at Naboba, a sacred glacial lake at about 15,000 feet. We spent two and a half days on the way up, passing some amazing settlements along the way. Most of the Arawakos seemed friendly, but we did kind of detour around a couple of houses that Faustino somewhat evasively said belonged to a different family. It felt a little like walking through somebody's backyard, not too comfortable really. But it all went pretty well, although the packs were heavy. Faustino and Attilio laughed at us the whole way up, calling us the gringo mules. They couldn't grasp why we wouldn't hire more animals, given all our extravagant gear and apparent wealth. We were cheap, but of course it also helped us get used to the altitude. And the altitude gain was extraordinary. We were basically walking from the tropics to the Arctic in about 25 miles. When we got to Naboba, we understood why the Arwakos considered it sacred. It's actually a number of lakes, which we didn't realize until we got here. We don't really have maps that show much. We thought we could get some from the army, but they weren't very cooperative, even though we'd all gotten our hair cut off. So basically we're going on that same postcard I showed you before the trip, taken from an airplane out over the Caribbean. But it's very windy at Naboba, so it's a lot more comfortable up here at 16,000 feet in a sheltered valley where we've put our high camp. When you get this letter, you may wonder why Jim is leaving on schedule and we're staying so much longer. Well, a crazy turn of events happened about a week ago, which hasn't made it into the letter yet. And all of a sudden, we have all kinds of food left. I'm going to get back to that. For the moment, we're hoping to climb the peak Cristobal Colon tomorrow. It's a good climb for the group, the tallest in Colombia at 18,900 feet, but the regular route is supposed to be pretty easy. We were going to do it a couple of days ago, but Bob was feeling sick. We had a kind of a big party when we got all the new food I mentioned, and it's hard to digest anything at this altitude. As a result, David and I decided to do a quick climb on a large ridge above high camp instead. 
We left at dawn, but upon arriving at the base decided it looked too easy. And that concept is, of course, a little glimpse into the absurdity of mountaineering. At any rate, we moved on up to a large, broken wall that looked to be a little more interesting. We put our rock shoes on and began the first pitch, a rope length, at about nine. It was my lead in a shallow corner with a lot of loose rock. David did another lead up a short face and was hauling all of our equipment over the broken rock, which was proving to be a big problem. We had to carry enough to be able to spend the night, since we really didn't know how hard the climb would be. After a couple of more pitches, we decided to leave all our emergency gear at a big ledge in the wall, which it seemed like we could return to from the side if we had to. But after one more really nice section of rock, I found myself in a snowy gully with only rock shoes and no ice axe. Kind of weird, but not too bad since we weren't carrying that much gear anymore. Then things got really good again as we faced a section of perfect granite with a single crack running up it. Up near the top, it turned into an off-width crack. Too large for hands, too small for the body. And at the very end, I just had to go for it and lunge for the very top. Fortunately, there was a beautiful invisible hold, also known as a thank God hold, right where I needed it. All this at 18,000 feet. I feel like we're really doing some climbing up here and nobody's even tried any of these walls before. It's like being a kid in a candy store. When David got to my belay spot, it was getting late and much colder. He led on through and we did a few more pitches which got us to a ridge really near the summit. But by then it was very cold and David's fingers were a mess. and My toes felt like they might freeze again. We decided on a hasty retreat so we could get down to less vertical ground before dark which was just about an hour away. Our high camp was already in the shadow of the mountain, and the tents were tiny little specks. Two shaky rappels ended in darkness, at which point we put new battery in Dave's light while hanging in our harnesses, and Dave rappelled down out of sight into the dark. After a long time, I finally heard him yell that he was down to the break in the cliff, and I laced my shoes back up, switched myself from my hanging seat to the rope, retrieved all but one anchor, and as smoothly as possible, so as not to overload that last anchor and pull everything, including myself off the mountain, descended, feeling my way down in the starlight with numb feet. It was easy to get over to the gear we had left behind once we were on the ledge, so we were soon warm again, and with the flashlight, we'd be in camp in a couple of hours. Unfortunately, the bulb busted when we dropped the light, and after stumbling along in the dark for a while, we felt like we were right on top of a big drop-off. So we got out our parkas and settled in to wait for the moon. Did you know that the moon rises about 50 minutes later each night? They didn't teach that in astronomy. We caught a little sleep, but the view was too amazing. The afternoon's tropical thunderstorms gradually subsided out over the jungle way below us, and finally we could see the lights of some Venezuelan town maybe 50 miles away. The stars were even more amazing than down in Donochui. At 18,000 feet, there's not much atmosphere between you and them. Once the moonlight hit us, it was fairly easy to travel, as soon as we warmed up anyway. We were down in the flats above camp by about 2 a.m. Everything was groovy as I watched Dave walk out across a particularly flat area, which I realized was a frozen pond at exactly the moment he dropped through the ice. The temperature swings so much at high altitudes near the equator that water thaws every day, then freezes at night. But fortunately, it wasn't that deep, about up to his shoulders, and I was able to reach out for his pack on the ice while he scrambled out. A 
At this point, we needed to get to camp in a hurry, so I started to yell as we walked along. After about a half an hour, we saw a light a long way from where we expected camp to be. It was a good thing they heard us, because we would have missed it by about a mile, and I'm not sure Dave would have made it through the night without sleeping bags and hot drinks. It was about zero, and he was soaked to the skin. The rest of the crew came racing out, and we bundled him up, and he was fine. But we decided to take the next day off and sleep in. I woke up late the next morning to a bunch of curses. We'd been having continual problem with our stoves, and they weren't working at all now. We had bought some bad gas for the trip, and on top of that had loaded a couple of gallons of it in a plastic pineapple syrup bottle, which the gas station said was clean, but apparently still had some residue on the bottom. Whatever the reason, it was a big problem up here and required a couple of hours of cleaning per day, using tools we'd made from crampon wrenches and wired stoppers, climbing hardware. We decided to have a raffle to see who would have to go down to base camp for more gas and another stove. The winner had a whole day of hiking in store, so we decided to chip in 10 Colombian Jet candy bars, our big luxury. Jim won, and he was actually pretty happy about it. About two hours later, we were all lying around in the sun when Bob noticed Jim coming back up the trail with somebody else. This was really odd. Even though another expedition had shown up from the other side of the range just as we were leaving Naboba for high camp, they had departed in another direction. Apparently strong climbers, they were bigwig diplomats from the German and American embassies in Bogota. Jokingly, we had agreed with them. Well, at least there'll be somebody else around to do a rescue. But we had been secretly jealous when they went after a beautiful ice face on the 17,600-foot peak El Guardian, which we had been lusting after, too. In fact, we had watched them climb up into a layer of clouds as we'd hiked to high camp, and selfishly commented that maybe they'd have to abandon the climb and we could try it later. As you probably guessed, something like that did happen, and our day off was over. Only two of their party had actually continued up into the clouds. Our visitor, Doug, had broken a crampon and turned back. Now he was coming for us, while the fourth member of their group, a German attaché, had decided to try to walk for help via a direct trail toward Valle du Par, which, traveling light, supposedly could get him to the road in 24 hours. David, who's at his best in such situations and has done a bunch of rescue stuff in Wyoming, put together signals and plans as we ate dinner and organized our gear in Naboba. We would split up the next morning, with Jim and me going over the west ridge of El Guardian with light packs and gear, while the others would take a lower, longer way around with food and fuel for three days. We knew the climbers had planned to descend via the back of the mountain and figured we'd search there first. After crossing the ridge, we headed east over fairly tricky terrain toward the back of El Guardian, blowing whistles in hope of contacting the lost climbers. In fact, if my handwriting seems even worse than usual, it's a result of a stupid hundred-foot fall I took on some steep ice that we should have been roped up for. My axe gashed my hand right where the pen rests. No big deal, but another lesson learned. Just because you're finally climbing for something resembling a sane reason doesn't mean you have to be filled with noble purpose, get in a hurry, and become a rescuee instead of a rescuer. We weren't to be rescuers that day anyway. After a good look around, we met the others at a lake on the backside, and after an incredible sunset and dinner, we decided to climb El Guardian the next day to look for tracks in the snow. The climb was beautiful, and amazing clouds and lighting 
and we did find tracks just below the summit, but they led off into very steep crevassed terrain and disappeared. It was pretty unnerving. We could only assume that they had fallen in a whiteout. But since our food was limited, we would have to leave James and their partner Doug to look for bodies at the base of the cliff the next day. The rest of us were completely exhausted the next morning as we headed back to Naboba. Our rest day had turned into three long days of climbing and searching. The only thing that kept us going on our way back was our curiosity about the fact that throughout the day a C-130 cargo plane had been flying overhead, and we thought we had heard a helicopter at one point. We were dismayed to find our campsite in Naboba completely ransacked and a big group of people right across the valley. Setting down our packs, we waited as the newcomers crossed the tundra toward our camp. You guys must have had it rough, they yelled. Not as rough as the guys we were looking for, we replied. Oh, didn't you hear? They're okay. And a Colombian rescue helicopter just crashed right over there. It was sick, but we all collapsed in exhausted laughter. We ran the mile to the site of the crash near the Lost Party's camp. There, wearing our ransacked clothes, stood the Colombian pilot and the German who had gone for help. The German had walked for 25 straight hours, called the ambassador in Bogota, got in a helicopter, climbed in, and flown directly up here and into the side of a cliff. As he sat by the crumpled machine with a broken rib and concussion, the news came over the radio that his buddies were sitting in Bayou Par's finest hotel. Nobody knew why they walked out in four days instead of returning to base camp in one. Furthermore, the C-130 orbiting overhead had come from Panama to relay radio calls and coordinate the American pararescue team, which was currently walking up from 11,000 feet, where their helicopters had dropped them. Of course, later, upon poking around in the Colombian helicopter wreckage, we would find the placard in English, Do not attempt to land above 11,000 feet. As we stood around the carnage, we began to hear the sound of another helicopter thumping its way up the Donachui Valley. More Colombians in a bigger helicopter come to rescue their fallen comrades. We watched in disbelief as the big machine banked in front of El Guardian, slid into the valley and landed right in front of us, spraying tents and garbage for hundreds of feet. Men in green with carbines jumped out, grabbed everything loose in the wreckage, along with instruments and radios, scooped up the pilot and the German, and took off saying they'd be back manana with beer. You can't imagine the dumbfounded looks on our faces as the high-altitude silence returned to Naboba and we stared at the scene. What in the world must the Arwakos have been thinking as the helicopters in the C-130 passed overhead? At least we weren't the cause of all this mayhem. The others wandered back to our camp after looking over the crashed copter which had hit high on a hillside and rolled over and over down to the edge of a small lake. I headed down the valley to look for the final rescue party, who were on their way to rescue the crashed rescue team who had been rescued by the third rescue team who had just left. This left the original rescue team, that would be us, to ponder the situation of the original victims, who were probably sipping rum in a hotel bar. Sure enough, the next morning we were awakened by the sound of the low-flying C-130 again and the explosion in red flame of a flare at the end of our valley. The Marines had arrived. We dressed while we ran the mile to the flare. Here were Marines to rescue everybody who had already been rescued, hardly able to breathe, having dropped their supplies several miles back. 
Now began the negotiations for our own rescue. We explained that we had exhausted most of our food on the recon trip around the mountain and in feeding the rescuers, and had just spent four days searching for high-ranking U.S. government employees. Surely there was something up in that airplane that could help us out. The sergeant relayed this up to the colonel in the plane in brief snippets as the C-130 passed in and out of radio range across the valley. Finally, they agreed that we merited some help, but that the prepackaged airdrop contained too much, and they'd have to go back to Barranquilla to repack a smaller unit. We pointed out that at $5,000 an hour, this seemed like false economy, but those appeared to be the rules. Right then, here come the Colombians again and their big copter to salvage some more parts. I ran over there to find no beer, of course, and then returned to the Marines, who were concerned that the Colombians weren't on the radio and might fly into them. We offered to translate radio frequencies, and just as that conversation began, the Marines yelled that the drop was now, a change of plans. We watched the huge parachute pop out of the back of the cargo plane and disappear over a ridge. On the next pass, the colonel told us that the chute was hung up on a cliff but looked okay. The official word was that we were to return all the extra stuff in the bundle. Right. We'd carry it all 25 miles down the trail. Basically, they wanted to get away from the crazy Colombians, and the stuff was ours. The Marines turned and left, and we went off to find our goodies. It took us a couple of hours to locate the parachute and finally reach it, but we've been living the good life ever since. Hundreds of K-rations. This is the good stuff. Turkey loaf, beef with spice sauce, chocolate nut roll, fruits and juices. All this while we live in our new 30-foot diameter parachute tent wrapped up in warm RB blankets. And probably best of all, we can use the extra stuff like first aid supplies to barter for enough mules to carry all the garbage out of the mountains and still have plenty of food to give to our, our Waco friends in Sagrome and Dona Chui. So that brings me back to now. After several days of debauchery, we're sitting here at 16,000 feet again, looking down at our big white dome home far below. It seems almost anticlimactic to return to first ascents on big mountains, but I guess we'll have to get back to it. We all know we'll probably never top these events up here, no matter what we do, so we'll stay till the rations get low. But Jim has to leave as soon as we climb Cologne tomorrow, and he'll mail this along to you. Hello to everybody. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Love, Bill. The music is what makes this all work. A big thanks to PodsafeAudio.com and the following artists. Uma Floresta, David Henderson, Gringo Hotel, Musicos Unidos de Latino America, and Tyler Riggs. Thanks for listening.